Welcome to the Eco News Report. I'm your host this week, Tom Wheeler, Executive Director of EPIC, the Environmental Protection Information Center. The Eco News Report is made possible by our sponsors, Dandar's Book Games and Books, located in Arcata. Dandar's is a family-owned retailer looking to share their love of games and fiction with Humboldt County. Go check them out and say thank you. The Eco News Report is also brought to you by Humboldt Distillery. You can find their delicious and organic distilled spirits at your local grocer. Thank you to Humboldt Distillery. And I'm joined by my friends Alicia and Scott from Friends of the Eel River. Hey, friends. Hey, Tom. And Jen Colt of Humboldt Baykeeper. Hi, everybody. Larry Glass of the North Coast Environmental Center. Howdy. And we're joined by our very special guest and friend, Jared Huffman. And I forget who you are with, Jared. (laughs) I'm with you. I work for you. Oh, you work for us. Well, thank you. So you have historically worked on an issue that is going to impact our North Coast right soon here. Jen Colt has been our leader on working on this Nordic Aquafarms project, which is going to implicate forage fish. So I'm going to turn it over to Jen to ask you our first question. Thanks, Tom. Yeah, so the proposed factory to raise Atlantic salmon at the former pulp mill has been the subject of a lot of concerns and weighing the impacts and the benefits. And one of those concerns is where is the feed going to come from? And the potential impacts on the marine environment wherever those forage fish will be harvested to turn into fish feed. And I know that there is a proposed revision to the Magnuson-Stevens Act that you have been working on that includes the Forage Fish Conservation Act. So I wanted to ask you to just speak a little bit about the importance of forage fish and how they would be protected in the U.S., in federal waters anyway, if this update to Magnuson-Stevens happens. Well, thanks for that question and, and thanks for your engagement and advocacy on this issue. Forage fish have not been managed like many other fisheries under the Magnuson-Stevens Act, which is our primary federal policy framework for marine fisheries. We tend to manage things that have developed industries. We set catch limits. We have stock assessments. We do all of this pretty careful and rigorous stuff for developed fisheries, but it has pretty much been the Wild West for forage fish. And that means that folks don't need to comply with a lot of rules when they go out to catch sardines or anchovies or any number of these other species that are not really regulated. There is this assumption, I guess, that there's all of this abundance and that they can just be harvested at will. But we know that they're pretty critical to a lot of other fish up the food chain, and they're really critical to the ecosystem that it all sustains. So we, we got to get forage fish into the mix. And I think there is a growing recognition that that must happen. So the, the West Coast region has begun to do that. Some other regions around the country have not. And you raise an interesting aspect to this. When forage fish being really unregulated are just harvested for low value use to be put into dog food or to be put into ground up into some sort of feed that goes into a fish farm. And they're needed out there in the ocean to sustain other fish and to provide all these ecosystem services. So I hope that the legislation that I'm authoring and that I I think we're going to be able to move through Congress establishes a new direction on federal policy to make sure that the the critical, critical role played by forage fish is not overlooked. And I hope, I certainly hope they don't use any of our forage fish to, to feed Atlantic salmon in a fish farm in Humboldt County. 
Thank you, Congressman. As you know, California is experiencing another drought year. We always talk about the new normal, and we talk about it as if it is some conditions that are going to be coming. But it seems that we are living in a perpetual drought now. It seems that the new normal is here and we are experiencing it. With all of this, there are competing demands for water. And I I know that you have previously worked on water issues as an attorney, as an environmental attorney at your time at the Natural Resources Defense Council. Scott, help me take over from here. What what do we want to know about Congressman Huffman's positions? Well, let's start with the Klamath, where, as most of our listeners have heard, we're facing a situation where probably nearly all of the juvenile salmon on the Klamath are dying this year from a parasitic infection that's exacerbated by a lack of water to flush the river. In your role as chair of the Water, Oceans, and Wildlife Subcommittee of the House Natural Resources Committee, you've been leading some important hearings and doing a lot of work to support the proposed removal of the Klamath dams. And just wanted to touch on the the news we heard yesterday that FERC has approved the license transfer that will allow that dam removal project to go forward. Can you talk about how dam removal is going to help with that problem? Absolutely. So let's talk about Klamath Dam removal. Let me quickly add an afterthought, though, on Jen's question about forage fish before we move on, because I was very fish centric in my answer. And I think it's important to note that forage fish also support seabirds and waterfowl. And the folks at Audubon are very passionate about forage fish, even though they're not really fish people, they're bird people. So I just wanted to make sure that we were checking all the boxes uh, on that. So Klamath Dam Removal just, I think, crossed a really important threshold, and that is the final FERC approval of the transfer of the license to this coalition, I guess you would call it, backed by the states of Oregon and California, but the, the Klamath Renewal Corporation being in the lead, because they can now finish the environmental review process and actually start taking out the dams. And so it, it was key to get that decision which was unqualified. It was everything we needed to see from FERC for this particular milestone. We still got work to do in the environmental review process, and we'll probably face the usual legal challenges and things that occur when when that is is finished. But I feel pretty confident that we're on track to remove the dams. The, The focus, from my perspective, is making sure we don't slip on the timeline or at least don't slip too much, because you're talking about 2023. You don't want that to slip into a presidential election year and then begin to worry about, gosh, what happens if the country takes a U-turn and elects Ron DeSantis or Donald Trump as, as president. And those are the kind of awful scenarios, almost unimaginable, that, that are probably one of the few things that could still mess us up. But I feel good. And this this was just really key. Why is it important? Because these dams not only block upstream passage, and and this is primarily an issue for the spring run, which used to be the dominant run in the Klamath, has dwindled to next to nothing, but they've got to have access to that upstream habitat to come back. But really, the water quality problems that those dams create, and you you talked about parasites and, and disease, that is largely a function of really bad water quality caused by these dams. So it's really the best thing that we can do to bring the river back in terms of its water quality and the fish numbers 
from upstream habitat benefits. And, and we, we just got to get that done. It comes just in time, really. Losing an entire year class is about as bad as it gets. Congressman, you Klamath Spring Chinook. I'd be remiss if I didn't note that the California Fish and Game Commission voted this Wednesday to list both Klamath Spring Chinook and Northern California Summer Steelhead as endangered under the California Endangered Species Act. Yeah. How will that listing affect the kind of decisions we're talking about here? Well, it's very helpful to have that that backstop of the California Endangered Species Act, because it gives us both federal and state law and really underscores the fact that, that there is a legal imperative at every level to bring these fish back. So switching over to the Central Valley, just very briefly, we noted that we're looking at a juvenile fish kill on the Klamath this year, which is really troubling for future returns. But meanwhile, on the Sacramento, we're looking at a situation where conservationists are concerned that hot water and low water in the upper Sacramento is going to result in a comparable wipeout of the adult Chinook returns to the Sacramento. And we're also looking at a really serious situation in the San Joaquin, where you were a leader in the efforts to bring salmon back. Can you just talk a little bit about what we can do, what we need to do? to try to fix, make it possible for salmon to hold on in the Central Valley? Yeah, so we're, it's going to be a pretty grim summer, and we are likely to see the 90% or more mortality for a winter-run Chinook salmon, which is hanging by a thread in the Sacramento River system. What do we need to do about it? Well, the, the Bureau of Reclamation is committing water from Shasta in a way that is going to raise water temperatures at the key time we need cold water. And we know that the fish are going to die. So somebody's got to go to court. And I don't know if there's even enough time to prevent the delivery of water to folks like the Sacramento River settlement contractors who have these, these really old vested water rights and are awash in water. I mean, it's just amazing that in a critical drought year, when everyone else is going to going to have to really make sacrifices. Some of these settlement contractors and riparian right holders in a, in a water rights system that still hasn't changed much from the gold rush are going to get just about everything they could need. We'll turn around and probably sell a lot of that water at massively high prices and profit from that. And a lot of impacts are going to get redirected to others. So I can't fix much of that as a member of Congress. This is, uh, you know, again, the vestiges of the gold rush water rules. And at some point, California is going to have to come to terms with that. But we have huge water allocations to some some players in the Sacramento and the San Joaquin. The San Joaquin has its own settlement contractors, and they get almost 100% of their massive, generous water contract every single year, even when others get zero. And it's just crazy, the haves and the have-nots of California water. So I think that we should probably turn to the, the next big fight we're looking at, which is the question of dam removal on the eel. I want to hand that over to Alicia. Well, given the news that PG&E will not be funding study plans for the current relicensing process that the two basin partners are pursuing what is your vision for the Potter Valley Project, and what do you think the path is to get there? 
it's it's disappointing news. I certainly had hoped that PG&E would figure out that this two-basin coalition, this attempt to take over its FERC license and to reimagine the Potter Valley Project in the way that we've done, and, and Friends of the Yield has been right there every step of the way, I, I thought they would see that in their own interest because it is in their own interest. This has the potential to save them a massive amount of money in decommissioning, which would otherwise be entirely on their dime. But by doing it in the way we propose, you open up you know, the possibility for public funding because there will be a lot of public benefits and a coalition and, and broad public support and all kinds of goodwill and, and other things that you don't get if this devolves to an adversarial fight. But I think by saying we're not going to contribute a dime to the studies necessary to sustain that partnership, PG&E is sort of throwing down a little bit of a gauntlet. And, and I'm... I'm disappointed to hear that, but I think it leaves two choices. I guess the coalition either finds the funds to proceed with these studies without PG&E, which is going to be hard to do, but it may be possible to stitch something together, or you don't have the funding to proceed along the path of a FERC license, and you have to try to get a two-basin solution another way. As much as I prefer the collaborative path that we have been on, and staying within the FERC process, if it fails, the plan B, the contingency would obviously be throwing this back at PG&E and demanding that they do the right thing. And it will be harder to hold together the coalition that we've built around this in that context, but it's not inconceivable. So I'm not giving up on the two-basin solution at all. I think what we're left with is a challenge of finding funds for studies or a challenge of holding a coalition together in a more adversarial posture versus PG&E. And, and we'll just see which one of those prevails. Congressman, I want to follow up on that a little bit. The path we're on right now is relicensing. If relicensing doesn't work, the only other option is FERC's surrender and decommissioning process. Oh. And my understanding is that pg and has indicated that it's ready to go on surrender and decommissioning and isn't even talking about dam removal. That seems to me like a path that from our perspective on the eel is not a bad one. And if the folks on the Russian River want to maintain a diversion, we've indicated our willingness to do that, but they're going to have to find a way to fund it. Yeah, I appreciate that, Scott. And and that is the reality. It, it goes to surrender and decommissioning if this thing falls apart. And that may seem like a, a pretty good bet for Eel River interests, but I think everyone continues to be at some risk in that scenario because the water rights are not really clear and, and we don't know where that goes. So it, it's certainly of great concern to the folks in the Russian River Basin because their water rights are ancillary to hydropower. And if the hydropower is surrendered and decommissioned, they're suddenly under this huge cloud of uncertainty. So it's just complicated. But I, I think under either scenario, FERC relicensing or decommissioning, there's a way to hold this coalition together and more importantly, to hold the two basin solution principles together. And I very much appreciate what you said about Friends of the Eel River being open to an agreement even under that scenario where a, a continued diversion would exist, because I think the, the politics and the economics and everything else should continue to bring us all back to this sweet spot of the two basin principles that we've all developed together. The Eco News Report, and we're talking to our Congressman Jared Huffman about the crisis in the Klamath, global warming, drought, and updates on the Eel River dams. Join us for more. 
Maybe you could just remind the listeners what you understand those two basic principles to be. They're built around co-equal goals. One of the goals being the removal of the fish passage impediments, which we know requires the removal of Scott Dam. We've done the studies and you can't get there to a self-sustaining, naturally reproducing a healthy salmon run without taking Scott Dam out. So that's the fish goal. But the other is the water supply goal to maintain water supply reliability for folks in the Russian River Basin that, whether you agree with it or not, have come to rely on this diversion for the past hundred years. And you can't just flip a switch and shut that off without all kinds of impacts that, that I think would be untenable. So those are the two, the, the two pillars, really, in which a series of other principles were developed, and that's the framework. Well, when we were talking about the Klamath Dam removal, we touched on the recent listing of Klamath Spring Chinook and how that's going to help our, our arguments for, for dam removal. By the same token, the listing of Northern California summer steelhead, I think, may assist us in, in moving forward with removal of Scott Dam. Our great hope now is that if Scott Dam can be removed soon, we could see the now extinct upper eel summer steelhead, the southernmost run of the highest jumping steelhead on the planet, return because the rainbow above Scott Dam have the genes to be summer steelhead. So we see this enormous opportunity now here. Yeah, there's a great upside to this. And that's why I think many of us are excited about this two-basin solution, because if you can take Scott Dam out and reestablish connectivity to all of that great habitat upstream, you know that you can meet the water needs with a run of the river diversion. It could either generate hydropower or not. I think part of our challenge here is if you do all of this in the hydropower box, all of the information suggests you're you're committing yourself to losing money running a hydropower operation just so you can stay in the hydropower box. So it's it's incredibly complicated, but the water rights and other aspects of the certainty of this deal might be better in that box. So this is a, a really ambitious and important process. Uh, it has the potential to bring an awful lot of public benefits, both on water supply reliability and salmon and steelhead restoration. It, it's worth doing. And I, I can't tell you exactly how it's all going to unfold, but I am really you know, more confident than ever that we're going to find a way to get there. Well, I, I just need to say that I am so grateful for the leadership you've demonstrated on the Klamath and the Eel, and we could not have made this progress without your leadership, and hats off. Thank you, Scott. So I'm going to turn the microphone over to Larry, because I I know that the North Coast Environmental Center, and and Larry in particular, has been working with your staff for for a terribly long time now on on the Wilderness Bill, and there's probably some updates we should get. Yeah, hi, Larry. Hey, good to see you, Jared. It's in the Senate, right? And we're sort of waiting for a, a hearing in front of the ENR committee, is the last I heard. One of our Sister Bills, I guess, got a hearing the other day. I heard it went pretty well. Were you able to sit in on that one or hear any feedback about that? No, I didn't, but I'd be interested to know. And then, of course, it's good news that Senator Alex Padilla has taken up our bill over in the Senate. We we needed someone to pass the torch from, from Kamala Harris, too, and, and we got him. Yeah, we sure did. I mean, he's aggressively taking the torch. Were you guys friends back before this? I mean, I'm, I'm so impressed at the way he's grabbed a hold of this and just running with it. 
Good, good. Well, I'm glad to hear it. Yeah, I've known Alex for some time. We were we served together in the state legislature. Yeah, I thought there was a connection like that because he just he just took this on like like you handed him off the baton in a relay race and just took off with it. So and, and he's been very supportive. His staff has been great. I assume your staff is working with his staff and. So we're all gearing up for the for a hearing at some point here. Maybe we're hoping August, is, if that's possible. Yeah, I hope so. And and you know the challenge with this and with everything else that's parked over in the Senate is what, what's your opening? How do you find your way to to get to a vote when when you've got this filibuster out there gumming almost everything up? Our bill would not be the most controversial aspect of that package. It's it's a bill that is pretty broadly supported. You know, we got some bipartisan support coming out of committee and natural resources. So I'm not so worried about our bill being controversial or partisan or anything like that, but it just takes like one senator to invoke that 60 vote process. And it's just not hard to imagine some anti-public lands senator like Mike Lee or, or I mean, it's, it's a pretty long list over there <laughs> that would do it. So I think we're going to have to look for some piece of legislation coming out of the Senate that has to pass. And we're going to have to creatively attach ourselves to it and and just be a little parasitic, if you will, in that in that regard. But that's that's the strategy. This raises a a question I've been wanting to ask for, well, years now. The the paralyzed state of our polarized Congress has, as you just described, made it really hard to pass even basically common sense, broadly supported proposals like your your North Coast bill, it's made it really hard to move forward with all kinds of, of policy. Yeah. And as a result, what we've had for administration after administration is executive actions that then sort of flip-flop back and forth. So we've had, for example, the roadless rule, the waters of the United States rule, the designation of Bears Ears and the Grand Staircase monuments happened because Congress couldn't act and then get pulled back by the next administration. And it leaves us in a situation where we're leaning on the Biden administration to do things through executive action, like the halt to oil and gas leasing that the administration just proposed, which then gets held up by a Trump judge. How do we move forward with effective forward-looking policy at a time when we face real crises of biodiversity protection, climate action. This is, this seems like a big structural problem. Yeah, that's, that's I think, a very insightful question. And it's totally true that making policy by executive order or federal rulemaking under debatable authorities is not very durable. It can put us in this whiplash scenario where yeah, the, the Antiquities Act is great. You can designate Bears Ears and then have it undesignated and now redesignated. And we all get very dizzy from that. So there, there's got to be a better way. We, we really should be able to legislate these things. And, you know, I guess some people would say elimination of the filibuster is, is partisan. I actually think it unlocks more possibility for bipartisan legislation because there's a bunch of this stuff they could get two, three, four Republicans to actually support. But to try to get to 60, that's that's like almost undoable. We can't pass anti-lynching legislation out of the United States Senate with a 60-vote threshold. 
And it's undemocratic. It's not in the Constitution. It's not in any law anywhere. This is a parliamentary rule that just sort of by tradition emanating from the Jim Crow era and and pretty unsavory politics opposing civil rights came to be this this tradition in the Senate that, that Joe Manchin kind of romanticizes. But but I, I think it's really just sinister and undemocratic and, and makes it so that we're on that that whipsaw policy ride back and forth between administrations, which is, is just a lousy way to go. You talked about the national injunction issued by the judge in Louisiana. That's another problem. When you have the opportunity to forum shop anywhere in the country to find the most radical Trump appointee judge, district court judge, who has the ability to grant a national injunction on something as important as a moratorium on oil and gas drilling on our public lands and off our shores, that judge shouldn't have that authority. We, we've got to find a way, I think, to, to bring more stability. National injunctions are really disruptive. And it may be that we want to consider legislation that would require any case seeking a national injunction to be filed in the district court in the District of Columbia or something. And that, I think, would cut down on the, the forum shopping that we see. Is there any opportunity for Congress to change the way that contracts let to oil and gas and other industries like that Trump all environmental regulation? Is there some way that we can change that contracting mess? We're looking at a number of things from the royalties to the standards on methane capture and other things in that context. But I will say, Larry, that this district court decision out of Louisiana is is just wrong. It's legally flawed. The administration has broad discretion to suspend this leasing program, to change the terms, to do any number of things. And I'm, I'm confident that it's not going to survive on appeal. I hope that there's a stay of the national injunction that comes down because of that. But it, it's really just the massive disruption and uncertainty that it causes that, that I think are the, the main problem. So, Congressman, you've been a leader in addressing Anwar and oil drilling in Alaska, despite being the, the congressman from Northern California. Briefly, can you talk about what positive legislation you've put forward to address oil and gas development in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge? Yeah, thanks, Tom. So we're, we've, I've been spearheading a couple of pieces of legislation for the last few Congresses. One is the, the Holy Grail, the permanent protection for the coastal plain. And, you know, we continue to have at least a modicum of bipartisan support on doing the, the unfinished business, really, from the 1970s when we created this Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. And we left this coastal plain unresolved as to whether it would be permanently protected as wilderness or whether there would be oil and gas development allowed. The, the American people want us to protect it. And bipartisan majorities continue to support protection. So I think that bill, again, if we can find a way to get it to a vote in the Senate, would pass, even with a little bit of bipartisan support. Lisa Murkowski would have a conniption, but if we could if we could get it to that vote, I think we could be successful. And I think President Biden would sign it. And we've passed this legislation out of the House a couple of times now. The second bill I'm working on is a, is a little more narrowly tailored. It would just undo what the Trump tax cut 
in 2017 did. Most people don't realize that, but that huge corporate billionaire tax cut included a mandate to go and drill in the Arctic Refuge. And that's why we saw this rush at the end of the Trump administration to push out leases in a way that's really legally dubious and, and I think is, is being properly halted now by the Biden administration. But there is right now on the books a law that says you've got to go and drill and do leases in the Arctic Refuge. We need to just undo that. And so I'm doing a, a very specific bill to get us back to where we were before that 2017 tax legislation. And we're going to look creatively at ways to do that, maybe even in conjunction with this infrastructure package that could be moving forward this year. Well, thank you, Congressman. So we here on the Eco News Report, we call each other the the Gang Green. And I, I think that you are an honorary member of Gang Green. So oh, thank you. I'm honored. Thank you so much for joining our show again. This is always a treat that we look forward to about twice a year. So we'll we'll talk to you in six months time. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. And thank you to you, our dear listeners, for joining us as well. This has been another issue of the Eco News Report. Join us at this time and channel next week for more environmental news from the North Coast of California. And check out the Eco News Report as a podcast. You can find us on your favorite podcast app.